Restart. Be Real is brought to you by the MFA in Writing program at California College of the Arts in San Francisco. Their two-year program has launched Molly Prentice, Adam Nemet, and Julie Lithcott-Hames. Come write with them. Learn more about CCA's den of poets, raconteurs, playwrights, and novelists at cca.edu slash writingmfa. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real welcome one and all to your movie reviewing and reappraising podcast be real my name is chance solemn pfeiffer and i'm chance solemn pfeiffer hey man don't mislead the public like and that. and i'm noah ballard thank you we're here today to talk about uh, uh, three movies where where women pull off immaculate heists or come close. Um, right, pull off is like a sort of a limited understanding. Cause right. the- <laughs> no, I neither saw nor understood any of these three movies. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, we look forward to the next hour. Uh, we're going to talk about the new Steve McQueen, Viola Davis starring movie uh, Widows. We're going to talk about 1996's Set It Off, uh, which is Jada Pinkett and Queen Latifah. And we're going to talk about a movie that came out earlier this summer, Ocean's 8, with Sandra Bullock, Cate Blanchett, and six other actors who you know. And before we go further, I've got to mention that Kira Wardlow from Film School Rejects and The Hollywood Reporter is returning to the program for the second time this year. She's going to talk to us about a piece she wrote about Steve McQueen and what a wonderful, empathetic director he is and how that stands out, particularly in this genre. That's coming up. Anything to say at the top or should we just get going with uh, Widows? Because boy, is there a lot to say. There is a lot to say. And... Noah, is this just so much more than a heist movie? Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, our dumb podcast genre category here is pretty limiting for what this is. But basically what you have, if I may chance, unless you want to. Please, lead the way. Viola. Is this sort of incidental crime thriller around the sort of national question of what is Chicago? And, like, what is Chicago lately? And, like, what is the truth about the level of violence versus the level of corruption there? And it just puts that in the puts that in the headlights. And then this pretty compelling crime drama sort of emerges around that plot where this famous crime guy who was, like, good enough friends <laughs> with the local government who was living this pretty sweet life with his, well, sort of sweet life with his uh, wife, Viola with one Davis. one major exception. Well, there are problems. Cracks emerge in his uh, biography as the movie unfolds. But then, like, there's, he's doing this, like, big heist thing, and him and his partners, who all seem to have families, too, from the opening shots, uh, are, they're killed when the heist goes bad and the truck explodes and the money's burned up and whatever. And then what we are left with is the four titular widows uh, who have to deal with whatever financial situation they're in without the income of this money they were supposed to get and this stream of illegal money in general. Mm -hmm. 
And when the person who was ripped off, uh, Jamal Manning, played by Brian Tyree Henry, who is running a contested race for Alderman of the 18th Ward against Colin Farrell's Jack Mulligan, uh, he wants that money back. So he gives them a month to, to repay money that was burned up in the fire. You have no idea, do you? Or did you choose not to know? Your husband stole $2 million from me. This is about my life. This is about my life. And because it's about my life, it now becomes about yours. Let's run down the cast a little bit. Yeah. So you have Viola Davis, who is the widow of Henry Rawlings, uh, the Liam Neeson character. Um, And then the other widows are Michelle Rodriguez, uh, who has her shop repossessed um, after her husband's dead. And it turns out he's just gambled away the lease. You have Elizabeth Debicki, who was a new face for me. Um, And then you have uh, Carrie Coon, too. So those are... Those are the four in a team that that sort of comes together. It's mostly just the three of them, and Carrie Coon sort of on the margins. Yeah, um, and then a really great babysitter. Yes, <laughs> babysitter slash driver. Oh yeah, Cynthia Revo, um, who's a she's Emmy great. And, an Emmy and a Tony winner, um, and does some incredible running in this movie. Unbelievable. Uh, Steve McQueen is such an actor's director, man. We'll talk about it. Uh, other people, Daniel Kaluuya gives an unbelievable performance. You'd know him best. If you don't know that name, you'd know him as Chris from Get Out. Um, Robert Duvall is in this movie. Uh, Colin Farrell, as I said. Robert Duvall's um, got some real like scenes in this movie. I was being a little facetious um, when I said at the top because every single piece that I've seen that's been written about this movie was like, oh, it's so much more than a heist movie. It's so much more than a heist movie. But it's not. The heist itself is very important and the meaning of a heist. And there's already so much like ample political and social read to four women cleaning up after the men and especially white men who fucked them over. Right. That like you don't need to... This is getting into my frustrations a little bit. but But yeah, I think that... Let's not dishonor this movie by being like, oh, the heist is just a, it's just, you know, it transcends heist. It's like, no, the heist is what, it, this movie is so thoughtful about it. Even as it does meander down some of those more topical rip from the headlines kinds of plot points. Yeah. But at the end of the day, though, that is all in service to set up the stakes of the heist. Right. And it's all used to explain the situation out to give you a sense of just how, how much weight it has, how much gravitas it has that leads to it, it allows then the actors and the storytelling to be sort of, dare I say, hyper serious. Yeah. What people mean when they say that is that there's way more going on in this movie than in Ocean's 8, but that should be obvious to anyone watching it, and it doesn't make it not a great genre crime film. But it's sort of it like is. if Steve McQueen did Ocean's 8, but like the hate you give you With know some of that yeah and some heat there's definitely some michael mann stuff going on here oh there's but that's the that's the good shit though and it's that's well done yeah 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 um so steve mcqueen if you're not familiar with that name this is his fourth movie he did 12 years a slave he did shame he did hunger um so somebody who feels like he's sort of been in the 
like is this like our next great filmmaker conversation for a while but he only has only has four movies to his name now um but if you've seen any of those movies you know how much he just loves actors um and he tells stories with actors faces or rather he lets the actors tell the stories themselves there's so many indelible shots in this movie to let you know exactly how people are feeling and like what motivated them later on when people's motivations become very important i you can point back to just people standing and emoting and you're like oh that's the moment they decided this oh that's the moment they realized that this changed forever and that's like a rare skill as a director even though it's what all movies are supposed to do right i think he's so artful in like stage managing and choreographing those things. Like at one of the pivotal scenes in the movie, Viola Davis is in Carrie Coon's house and the whole thing, this, this whole like emotional narrative like plays out, but it's just in this hallway of this like tiny apartment with a dog barking is the only noise. Right. And a dog scratching at a door. And it's mm-hmm. so... I also shout out to that fucking dog who's the same dog I read on IMDb as the dog from Game Night. So that dog has like been through some shit. That he little was covered white, with fake blood. White Westie Terrier. <laughs> yeah. But the dog really adds something about Viola Davis, who's otherwise like so unscrutable. And then she has this like dog there so she's like this very fragile little dog which like sort of puts out this this like sort of feeler of like can i be emotional can i be open here yeah it's this piece of her that she ultimately kind of checks at the end right right um it's like all right i gotta leave this piece behind uh yeah the dog the dog is doing work also it was awesome to hear viola davis like hates dogs and she's like they're disgusting but then i met this dog and i was letting it lick me right away i loved it it's like good <laughs> this is a great dog but I think Steve McQueen's a great choreographer in this movie that could have easily been like, God, can you imagine this movie if like Antoine Fuqua had directed it? It would be bad. It would be so just like by the numbers. I mean, and this script is sort of by the numbers. It's taught. Good job, Gillian Flynn, um, the writer of Gone Girl. But it's it it's playing with some pretty understood genre tropes. It, it has some fun with them, but they're still very much there. But I think in a less capable director's hands, this could have been like serious Ocean's 8 and like not good. And there's so much in here. This movie's, I think, only like 210. This movie could easily be two hours and 45 minutes if they were going to like fully unpack everything in here. I'm not saying it should be, um, but people have been making that sort of that heat comparison. And you know, when um, Dennis Haysbert shows up as like the line cook, like an hour and a half into heat and you're like, what a new, (laughs) completely new character. That's kind of how it is with Cynthia Erivo in this, in this movie uh, that it takes some confidence. And like you said, some quite a bit of managerial skill as a director. Yeah. Just to put her in the same space and give her that kind of like, she needs the money too kind of moment kind of feel about her, but it's accomplished with this really compelling, as you said, running sequence. Yeah. I think there's some great sequences in here that do a lot of work where a lesser film would have been like her arguing with like a landlord about making a rent payment or something. The line I keep coming back to is she's running out the door from having come home after a long day of work, her mom is babysitting her kid. 
And then she gets that text and to go babysit Michelle Rodriguez's kids. And he goes, Ma, it's $12 an hour. I can't turn that down. It's like eight words, but $12 an hour. I can't turn that down is such a like, oh my God. Like, yeah, it's this so is, sad. This is a hard fucking life, man. And also puts in perspective, like what a heist means, which I'll, I can go off on my, my theory in a little bit, but like what else well, is I good think, about this movie? I think to do a good heist movie, you need to understand the geography of not only like the place that they're robbing, but you also have to understand the place where they have to like disappear into in the immediate, like two mile bubble around them. I think good examples of this lately are like, um, baby driver, just regular driver, um, (laughs) drive. Oh, drive. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Those movies are great in like, that LA sequence. I think about that sequence all the time where he pulls into a, uh, an LA Lakers game. The Staples center. Yeah. He pulls into the Staples. And it's so like, so fucking smart. Right. Like lose yourself because of the geography around you. So in this one, I think it's good at very good at like establishing that we're at the tail end of one of the L lines and you can see the train sort of on these above ground tracks, but otherwise like everyone sort of gets to place from place to place via car. And there's some good like car, like here's the limousine. Cause that means it's the alderman candidate. It's Colin Farrell. Like that's a, that car is such part of his character, you know, reminiscent of like, maybe like the Lincoln lawyer, which was like a f- deeply flawed film, but an interesting relationship kind of like what, what power does this man have because of this vehicle? And for Colin Farrell, this limousine is just like his entitled privilege. Mm-hmm. You know, it's his it's his cocoon away from what are all these people doing? What are these journalists asking kind right. of thing? And I think there's that great shot that I like I texted you about like the moment after I saw this movie and I was where he gets into Colin Farrell gets into he stumps a, a journalist like yells at him about some money. He's probably embezzled and he gets into the limousine and the camera's mounted on the hood of the limousine all the way to, like, the left. You see, you see the neighborhood. And they're leaving sort of this, like, very impoverished, sort of ramshackle-looking building part of town. And as he's talking about being, like, sort of concerned about his own penis size compared to a stereotypical black man's penis size, you see the neighborhood transition from the ghetto to these like very nice houses that have been like gerrymandered into this otherwise horribly depressed districts. And it's, and the conversation, I mean, a a worse movie would have, you know, had star from the hate you give telling us about like, and the town had seen terrible gentrification over the past cycle of, of, uh, you know, Colin Farrell's father and like whatever. And this one, no, it just show us the, the short trip two blocks over, it's a totally different universe. I don't know what neighborhood it is, but it is a it is an uncut drive from somewhere to somewhere that shows you It's just you one how, long shot, and then the camera yeah. only makes one move from left to right to show you literally the other side of the street is the nicest, very like security guard heavy iron bar sort of protected houses in this sort of old style. It's great. Yep. It's really smart. Can I... So as please, we sort of please. Turn, as we sort of turn a little bit more toward um, a rating, 
I, I think I like jokingly tweeted this from the BR account a while ago. It was like, <laughs> all we ask of Widows is that it be the best movie we've ever seen. Is that too that much? <laughs> um, and I do think I went in uh, expecting too much or maybe something too specific because I walked out of the movie being a little upset that first of all the Colin Farrell and Robert Duvall characters are not real characters they're not like well written at all all the everything they talk about is just like to signal to you that they feel different flawed white man generational ways about power and they yell at each other about power and how to keep it Um, which is like really kind of on the nose and it made me feel like politics was sort of grafted onto a movie that just should admit it should have some fun with the heist wish fulfillment that it ultimately, you know, n- not to spoil anything, but fulfills in a way. When I saw this movie again, though, I think this movie is thinking so hard about what a heist is and the fantasy cinematically and realistically. The, there's this motif in the movie where every every white man offers a woman or person of color like some kind of ticket to the next level. Um, Colin Farrell does it to Jamal. Lucas Haas does it to Elizabeth Debicki. Uh, Liam Neeson um, in various ways represents that to different people. Um, they're always offering this like, oh, you have no safety net? Well, you please use my magic uh, panacea key to jump up to the next level because how else will you do that? Um, good, good for panacea. <laughs> thank you. Um I mean, mixing metaphors, though. So bad, good for my mixed metaphors. Um, but but I think what this movie is saying is that if you want to maintain dignity and agency and you want to turn down the corrupting white privilege magic key, where are people to turn? And it is something as fantastical and movie-bound as a heist. I think, and I, I definitely do want to see this movie to, again, and maybe I'll have a different opinion on it then, but I do think this movie has this great sense of, like, sure, it creates sort of, like, white stereotypes and, like, white male stereotypes, and that's fine, but it sort of has the, sort of, to, to, it needs something to point at, and that's what it is, and then it sort of says, don't wait for them to come to you in a moment of desperation to give you power. If you know you have them by the balls, just fucking steal it. I like that, yeah. Because that's the thing. They realize that... Because they only come to you to preserve their own power. Correct. But if you know that you have the that even that marginal edge over the house, you have to, like, all in. Because they know... That's what's interesting about the movie is not when they realize... They don't think that they're good criminals. The real key to that last heist they do, the the notebook heist that Liam Neeson has left for them, is not how easy it is to pull off or anything. It's that it's such a resource to have $5 million that nobody can go to the police about. Right. And if you steal it and you get away with it, you just have it. Nobody's coming to find it. And that's really the key. And I think to set up that sort of level of disbelief, like, of course you have to create a somewhat unrealistic, like flashy context around it. But I don't know, man, I was fooled. And I think the rather animated, shall we say, audience that I saw it with um, also was fooled into really rooting for these ladies after seeing men just like not know how to fucking do shit. 
I think that I still have like a couple issues on like a literal level. Like Robert Duvall does not need to say him saying the n-word in the fifth word he says in the movie is such a like shortcut to let you know about how it's offensive. so jarring though yeah of course it is it's terrible but he says it so fast and you're like okay okay fine i got it i know what yeah, you're sort of wondering in your mind like i wonder if he's gonna and then he says it <laughs> right um so yeah i think under some like literal crime movie things that if you're looking at this movie one way you're like can you just spread that out and turn that more into like intrigue and let this movie's kind of simmer in this noiry, corrupt morass of politics kind of way? Um, but like it's like I said, I don't think those characters are characters. I think they're just very necessary meaning for the movie to get to this other thing. Yeah. Um, but God, I love that shit, man. You know me. I love what? all that like that like dirty money and like dark politics and like scheming sure. behind closed doors. That's yeah. Put that in all my movies. <laughs> Why didn't Buster Scruggs have that? Why didn't Buster? Well, I kind of did. Why don't we tell people real quick if they don't know, if they're visiting us for the first time or need a quick refresher, how we rate movies on the be real podcast. There is no ambiguity on be real. All movies can and will be classified by one of our four ratings. Good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to sheer artistry. The second is pure entertainment. Good, good is easy to explain. It's a movie that engages your inner art critic and brings you some form of happiness. For both reasons, you want to watch that movie again. Think Shawshank Redemption or Jurassic Park. (laughs) Or more recently, Get Out and Lady Bird. That we know of yet. Good, good movies make Noah hyperbolically say, That was the best movie I've ever seen. Bad, bad is easy too. Movies that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just spent two hours wishing you could watch something else. Think of any musician turned actor who gave it a go in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. I'll pass. Or many Nicholas Cage movie where he plays a wizard or a warrior. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. Bad, bad movies make chance say, I hate so much that you made me watch that. Now, good, bad movies. Those we recognize as worthwhile in a cinematic sense, but don't necessarily enjoy. Think Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, or a Ward's Bait that hinges on a historical figure delivering an impassioned speech. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! These kinds of movies make Noah say, But it was so boring. And then I remind him that at least Leo finally got his Oscar for crawling through all that mud. Conversely, bad good movies feed your thoughtless inner child. They're anything from flawed but charming Nancy Myers outings. I'm miraculously done being in love with you! To late career missteps like Al Pacino and Danny Collins. They're loud and silly, like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China or Stargate. It's all in the reflexes. Bad good movies make me want to watch Tombstone, especially when Noah says, But didn't the Mighty Ducks just give you that warm holiday feeling? Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear two friends who watch movies for very different reasons talk about their taste like it's God's own truth. I think that Widows is not only a good good, I think it is definitely the best movie I've seen so far this year. (sighs) No, it's really good. I'm with you too. Um, I yeah, I was frustrated that first time for like a weird reason, but then like when I talk to everyone else I respect, they're like, "You're just go watch it again and like try to enjoy it as a movie and not as like a 
prescriptive like crime genre thing and i was like okay and then i did that and i loved it so yeah um, no i yeah. went in with that kind of i thought it was going to be more about them in sort of an ocean's 80 kind of way and right. when it starts the movie with such a zoomed out kind of like we must explain to you first the world and then it sort of zooms in on that i'm like okay i'm on board for two hours and seven minutes or whatever yeah and we didn't really talk about the performances Violet Davis is great. Elizabeth Debicki so like winning. Daniel Kaluuya is unbelievable. <laughs> He's a really good like henchman bad guy. He's his body language is so completely different than you know in Black Panther or Get Out, um, yeah, or Sicario or any of the other things you've seen. He's him in. great. And it you know Steve actually it feels to me like Steve McQueen has actually reserved this role for him. He's a, reminds me a lot of how he photographed the Michael Fassbender slave owner in 12 Years a Slave, who is just nothing but terrifying. And the movie's sort of like, maybe a hair problematically, but just like, it's so like electric how purely evil this person is. And that scene, sure. do you remember that scene where he's got Solomon around the shoulder and like you see that he's had a gun to him the entire time? That sort of juxtaposition of two actors' faces is the same trick he does when... Kaluuya lies down in the bowling alley lane next to the right. guy he's just stabbed over and over. It's so, it's great. I just love it in the, the scene with the rapping and just like him getting in those people's faces. Oh and did your crowd like uncomfortably laugh? Cause that was all they could do. Yes. Yep. <laughs> I think that's a natural reaction. Yeah, no, it was, he's really good. Steve McQueen is very good at making those moments where audiences will laugh because they're, they know like they're on the, like the, precipice of some horrible act of violence the thing where michelle rodriguez goes to the architect's house my audience had no idea how to respond to that oh yeah they were laughing my they, they were like shouting like no but i don't think it's supposed to be funny but like it was all people I, could well, do. I think my audience initially thought that she was like using her feminine wiles to get info on the right but she wasn't that's not what happened oh man so, yeah this, this is a movie that rewards rewatches and it's just a great theatrical experience. I wouldn't be surprised if this gets nominated for like best original screenplay or like best director, but with no best picture nod kind of thing. Yeah, That's genre prejudice or racial prejudice whatever. or women. Um, pick your prejudice as to why yeah. this probably won't be rewarded appropriately. We're more comfortable with uh, green book, right? Yeah. From the nuanced fingers of uh, Peter Farrelly. <laughs> All right, before this turns into a full-on Green Book podcast, though, why don't we go to our guest interview and talk a little more about Widows. My husband left me the plans for his next job. All I need is a crew to pull it off. Why should we trust you anyway? Because I'm the only one standing between you and a bullet in your head. That's what I've learned from men like your late husband and my father. Is that you reap what you sow. Let's hope so. Well, our guest today uh, returns to Be Real um, after a really fun conversation back in February about Annihilation that I really enjoyed. She is a writer for The Hollywood Reporter and for Film School Rejects quite regularly. Um, and she's she's written today about um, Steve McQueen, the director of Widows, and how his, his take on filmmaking in general, his empathetic, human-driven, revelatory take... Uh, makes Widows stand out within the heist genre. But Kira Wardlow is back on the show. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Glad to be back. Very happy to have you back. Um, so Kira, 
as I was looking around for podcast guests to come on and talk about widows, it seemed like every other headline one way or another was like widows is more than a heist movie or widows is elevated beyond a heist movie. And that meant a lot of different things to a lot of different writers, but mm-hmm. let's get into, into your thesis. What makes Steve McQueen's take on filmmaking different in this genre? You know, the directors who really stand out are those who are not just good at making movies, but they have something in particular that they really care about in storytelling, you know, something that they do particularly well and consistently. And when you look at the films that Steve McQueen has made, which, you know, Hunger, Shame, 12 Years a Slave, and now Widows, he tells stories that are very brutal, but they're really about people. They're very humane. And that is a very intriguing mix because I don't know any other director who does it quite the way he does. And what is it specifically about him? How does he get across that humaneness or humanity? The thing is, films like violence. You know, there's a reason Quentin Tarantino is so popular. Um, but when films show violence, you know, violence in reality is very unpleasant. You know, it's not fun and it's not entertaining, but movies want to be entertaining. So they want to create this distance from the violence. Um, and in my article, I go into a couple ways that they do this. Like if you watch a Quentin Tarantino film, you know, you tend not to focus on the person who's being hurt, um, like on their face. It tends to be a lot of really fast cutting. So it's just kind of this visceral sense of, you know, craziness and movement as opposed to like, this is an actual human being who's being hurt, you know, who's in pain. Um, or kind of focusing on like kind of aesthetic gore, blood spatter, all that sort of stuff. Um, so that's kind of a very common way of distancing from the actual human identity of the person who's being injured. And Steve McQueen never does that. The way that he does violence is very distinct. He tends to either show you something or he's not going to show you something. And he tends to do long takes. So he tends not to cut on violence. So you either have to watch it or, you know, you're not going to see it. And the thing about him is he is so particular about how he does framing and what he has in his shots that it's still somehow very watchable, but it's also painful. That's what I was going to ask you specifically was the other three McQueen movies, Hunger, Shame and 12 Years a Slave, all have that sort of barrier to entertainment in the subject matter um, and in the fact that they are all high drama this does seem like it would be the first one of McQueen's movies that at least promises some like sheer audience enjoyment and entertainment. Do you feel like the uh, entertaining aspects are held intact despite his more um, like person, pain, emotion driven depictions? I think so. I think it's an interesting move for him, you know, because he's trying in a sense to go more mainstream, but I feel like he's still really sticking to himself and his strengths as a director and a storyteller and an artist. Um, So I don't think he's compromising himself. I think he's trying to expand his reach, but he's not compromising what made his earlier film so distinctive. Um, And I I do think there's still some, you know, because it's a very complicated mix of things, right, to balance like brutality and entertainment value. So I think in Widows, there's still some, you know, working out the kinks, so to speak, like trying to figure out how to perfect that balance. But I think it's a very intriguing 
you know, effort. And I think it'll be interesting to see where he goes next with it. Right. So let's talk about the movie a little more specifically. What mm-hmm. are the, uh, I mean, your your piece was sort of billed as the surprising empathy of Widows. Where are the surprising moments coming up for you? I think that the, the, the surprise is more in the fact that it's empathetic in the way that it is at all, because heist movies tend not to be, you know, I think the opening shot, which has gotten a lot of attention in uh, pieces, is I think a, a kind of a key element to the sort of surprise, you know, it's, it opens on the shot of Viola Davis and Liam Neeson, you know, as a married couple in bed, they're an older married couple, interracial married couple. And a lot of the focus has been on, wow, Hollywood doesn't normally do that. You don't normally just have this kind of sort of quiet, intimate moment, especially not between people like over the age of 30, especially not an interracial couple. Um, And that's all very true. But for me, even just considering the genre opening on just a shot of an intimate moment is very, you know, it's not the typical. And then it cuts, you know, to this high action chase scene with bullets flying and, you know, all the sort of things you'd expect from the opening of a heist movie. So he does both. He's like, okay, I'm going to give you, you know, the opening to a heist movie, but you, you got to do this first. We've got to deal with the humanity of the people involved first, and then you'll get your car chase and your, you know, shootouts and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about Daniel Kaluuya a little bit? Because a lot of your piece focused on him as uh, as the Manning, the, what is his name? Jametta Manning? Yeah, Jametta, I, I wasn't, I, yeah, I was thinking, because he doesn't, you don't really hear his name too much, you know? He's no. just sort of this looming presence. But yeah, Daniel Kaluuya's character is is interesting because he is, He's the inflictor of a lot of the violence you're talking about. Yeah, and he's definitely, in terms of just what he does, he's kind of the, 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 the person to be feared in the film, you know? Even though he's working for his brother and is really like an enforcer, he is like the big bad in the sense of it's his threats that are really kind of pushing um, the protagonist, pushing Viola Davis into action, um, you know? And... A lot of the reviews I read were talking about him as like a psychopath, you know, sociopath that he, he, you know, but the thing is with that, when you think of kind of the traditional sort of stereotype of, you know, sort of this evil inflictor of violence, someone like the Joker or something like that, is that, that they enjoy what they're doing. But to me, the way that his character is portrayed, he doesn't seem to be enjoying it so much as it's it's a job to him he's very you know his eyes are very empty and we know that Daniel Clear can really his really expressive eyes I mean get out you know like he can do a lot and they're very dead throughout the film you know so you watch that and you think well this this is a this is a choice that's being made and how he's portraying this character and it's detached yeah because there's that one scene that I was thinking about uh the way you wrote about him in your piece where after he kind of six his guys on Viola Davis's driver, the Garrett yeah. Dillahunt character, and he goes and like watches TV and he's kind of like squirming around like he's a little kid who can't get comfortable just because like there's something happening over here and I want to get the TV up loud enough that I can enjoy it. And yeah, it's all very unlike the sort of the more sadist villain. It's not very arch at all. Mm-hmm. Um, were there other characters where you felt, um, where your thesis applies, where you're like, this is just way more emotional attention uh, than I thought we would pay to this character? Did anyone else jump out for you? Like, for example, Colin Farrell's character is treated like he doesn't have 
he doesn't care about people. He doesn't really care. So he's treated with a much greater distance. You know, like there's that long shot where they're in the car and they're ta- where he and his, um, is it his wife or his assistant or is it? I both? think it's his assistant. Okay. His assistant, um, who are in the car and you just, you just see the outside of the car. You never see them, you know, you just hear them talking, you know, and, and they're not given the same sort of connection just because they're so again, detached, but in a different way from, mm-hmm the humanity of other people you know he just sees people as tools to be used for his own personal gains and then you know another scene and i have seen some criticisms of this scene online too when um and this i mean this would be a spoiler so i don't know okay it's uh, yeah it's the scene where um where bio davis and um lee neeson's son is shot and killed and you know it's one of those things some people are saying, oh, is, did it need to do this to be topical or whatever? And, and I mean, to me, the thing is, it, there are some times in films, you know, when it'll do something, it's like, it's just doing this to be relevant or whatever. I don't think that's the case at all in this film and in this, you know, instance, just because it's so fundamental to the whole dynamic of the film, right? Uh, the thing is, I'm biracial and I'm from Chicago. Um yeah, so this idea that it's he that he is talking on the phone to his father, who's Liam Neeson, who's a white guy, and that he interacts with the police in that particular way. Um, you know, he doesn't automatically jump to them as being a threat, which is something that when you know you're by you are taught to treat, you know have a different relationship with the police versus if you're white. Um, and so that he's not like that he doesn't, he just kind of, I think is reaching for probably his license and registration, even though they're technically telling him to put his hands up is kind of that nonchalance, you know, it kind of gets into some of these nuances of how the societal racism and things like that can particularly be difficult in these sorts of interracial relationships, you know? Um, and I think it so contributes to the character arc of Liam Neeson's character and the whole thing with him. Um, and also just the way, again, in which that scene is shot, it's shot um, at a kind of a distance, like if you're a bystander, like if you were just kind of standing on the sidewalk watching this happening on the street. So it's not getting up in his face, but in a sense it makes it feel much more real because it's just a long shot, it doesn't cut, and you're just kind of standing there, you know? So it, it again, in not cutting, it makes it a more direct connection. Um, so again, I think it's one of those cases where he decided to show it, and then the way in which he showed it didn't, it, it, it wasn't, I think, being overly pandering. It wasn't like trying to, you know, it was enough of a, it's enough of a tragedy in itself. It doesn't need cinematic tools to like, you know, get really up close or have a huge musical swell. Um, yeah, so I think he's really good about that. Stephen Queen's really good about that too, is knowing sometimes when to when to pull back a little when you don't need to over exaggerate things cinematically. I did not know you were a Chicago native. What did you make of the uh, Chicago depiction in this show? I thought it was funny because I went to the uh, the press screening in Boston. So there was like uh-huh. one line confer- about um, Latin school of Chicago, and I was like the only person who laughed because like. I'm from there, so I get it, but no one else did. Um, but so, like, I think there was a lot of truth to it, you know, and how it's talking about 
very relatable in terms of some of the things about violence and um, in, you know, the city. Uh, one thing I will say is Colin Farrell's accent. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like Mayor Daly by way of the Emerald Isle or, yeah. Yeah, but the thing is for me specifically, right? So as I mentioned, I'm biracial. My mother uh, is from Ireland, you know, born and raised. So I spend a good deal of time there. And my relatives will make fun of me for, you know, the American accent. So all I can hear every time Colin Farrell opens his mouth is my aunt mocking me. Because oh. <laughs> that's exactly what he sounds like. He sounds like an Irish person putting on a really exaggerated attempt at a Midwestern oh, accent. I so see. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is something that like is only specifically triggering for me as a person. Like No one else will be bothered by this, probably. That's a very small cross-section of people who that yeah. would cut to the core of. Yeah, it's like I know what he's supposed to sound like and I know what he actually sounds like and they're very different things. But yeah, so no, but... It is. It is because I didn't actually realize until I was in. I'm like, oh, this is set in Chicago. I didn't. I didn't realize that going in. What did you make of the? Just out of curiosity, on that note, the the scene you were talking about earlier, where we critically stay on the outside of the car during that long take drive. Mm-hmm. Um, did that feel uh, true to life about the short distance in which they navigate over from a, a couple of blocks um, from like that clearing spot to Colin Farrell's swanky Union House? Did that feel real in your experience i mean in a sense of like right there's there's all sorts of weird forms of like gentrification and stuff that go on in cities you know yeah. so it's yeah. like it's the idea of right because like that's the whole thing is he has to kind of be in that area to be the representative but he's kind of like on the edge you know because he doesn't actually want to be in that community so to speak um so like i feel like that was well done to show how close together you can have these very um, different communities because in a lot of senses, Chicago tends to be like a lot of microcosms. It is kind of notorious for being kind of segregated in little ways and and lots of little ways and like having little pockets. So I think that was, you know, that that was a good way of showing that aspect of it, you know, how you have, these things that are close together, but they're not really integrated. They're still kind of separate worlds. Let's wrap up with just any any final notes on Widows. Did you, you wrote, um, you know, you were pretty specific in your take, but I think people have thought the movie is, is good to great. Where do you fall on it, Kira? To me, I think it's pretty great in just in terms of it's something that I think should be encouraged. I think it's a way that I'd love to see other films move. Um, again, as I said, I think it's really um, ambitious in a lot of ways. So it's not, you know, it's not perfect. There were a couple things that I think, you know, could have been polished or done a little better or felt a little awkward, but I think overall it was pretty great. Like, I think it's definitely something people should go see. All right. Well, great. Thanks so much for being with us, Kira. All right. Thanks for having me. Now, the best thing we have going for us is being who we are. Why? Because no one thinks we have the balls to pull this off. What are we talking about now? Set it off? Let's talk about set it off. Yeah. All right. So were you aware of this movie? I was. That's why I suggested it. I had not seen it, though. You've never... I hadn't seen it either. I don't think I even knew that this movie existed. It's 1996. It's F. Gary Gray is the director who you would know um, 
like he made a came upon the scene with like Friday, um, but then has since made a lot of sort of um, just you know middling action Hollywood films. crap. Yeah, <laughs> the Italian Job, Fate of the Furious, The Negotiator. Oh, I movie. go nuts for The Negotiator. Though it's such a shame that Kevin Spacey's in it. Yes, I was just reading this article. I think it was Vanity Fair and Newsweek or something. It's like, where the hell's Kevin Spacey? No one's seen him in over a year. Good. Yeah. <laughs> what do you want f- to happen? Um, but this is just his second film. Um, and it's set in a similar uh, place as, as Friday. Um, what are they in? They in South Central Los Angeles? That's right. And as, as our genre tells us, here we have four women, all black women, uh, making a plan to rob banks to improve their circumstances and and maybe maybe get out of town. Our, our women are Jada Pinkett, uh, no Smith at the time, Queen Latifah, Vivica A. Fox, and uh, Kimberly Elise, who I did not know. Um, I'd seen her in something else, but yeah, I didn't know her name or anything. Okay. Vivica A. Fox, of course, is uh, Will Smith's girlfriend from Independence Day. That's right. <laughs> Jasmine. Uh, I wonder if she, do you think she like introduced him and Jada? Do you think she also likes dolphins in this picture? All right. No Independence Day deep cuts on this podcast, please. <laughs> Lest I talk about Snowpiercer. You don't um, have any Snowpiercer deep cuts because it's a mile wide and an inch deep. What happens in this movie, Noah? You want to get us into it? After a brutal prologue where this bank gets robbed, that where Vivica A. Fox works as a teller and she doesn't follow protocol, which like, doesn't really make any difference for the level of violence that sort of erupts, but like multiple people get killed including some of her colleagues and a security guard. And then two of the three guys, one of whom she knew Mm -hmm. uh, who robbed the bank and got away with a fair amount of money. And so then like before they even get to wash the blood off of her from her colleague's brain exploding on her face, she gets fired for like maybe being involved because she like knew the main guy and like John C. McGinley's the investigating detective and he's just like jacked up to 11. Right. And he's just like, what are you supposed to do? If someone's robbing you, what are you, sp- what's protocol? Yeah. And it's like, what? John C. McGinley, like, who are you? Like, what are you, what are you doing here? Just take yeah. it easy. If you're, if you're here now at the prologue, where are you going to be at the inevitable <laughs> climax? It's a good point. Um, a also, question that I also to... have for this movie, too. If there's that much blood in the opening scene, where are we headed? Yes. Um, yeah, really sad prologue, too, in terms of like establishing just the helplessness of these women. Because my read was... This guy initially comes into the bank and is just like, give us the money. And he hasn't like told everyone, hasn't yelled, hasn't told people to get on the floor. I feel like Frankie had to say no and was like, you had better go through the motions of robbing this bank because I will not be an accomplice to this. And of course, then everyone's like, you were an accomplice, right? Um, right. It's really sad. And, this, and it also makes a weird sort of leap in reality, too, of like, why didn't she just like hand him the, like the protocol is just to hand them the money and like, preservation of life like the money if she insured. does damned if she doesn't but you think it would have been like a better intro for showing her how easy it is to rob a bank that's the big issue that i have with this movie is because at some point it needs to posit that it's very easy to rob a bank but if the prologue teaches us anything it's that no the human factor makes robbing a bank literally impossible and most people will die 
and most um, people will die. So that that's what doesn't. So this movie comes out swinging in a big way, but I think it could have come out. It, it could have come out swinging in like a softer way of just showing him taking the money and like her getting fired still, but her yeah. now knowing how easy it is to rob a bank. It's weirdly like not that cathartic because these women have so many reasons to get even. But like the movie doesn't take any joy in the fact that for a while they are able to or would be able to, um, which is just a big bummer, especially in a movie that is like, again, like Steve McQueen didn't direct this. This is this is like watching Lesser McTiernan for the most part. Um, so why is it so hard to take? Why don't I? Why, don't the why does the script like allow on? so many horrible things to happen to these women? Like they have enough reasons to do what should be ultimately like kind of a fun premise. Right. Like why this movie chooses to be more drama than comedy when there's so many like sight gags clearly in the script that they like sort of brush over like that godfather scene for like the tenor of this movie makes absolutely no sense but also that's what i wanted the movie to be exactly well it's like this is like widows but without any of the artfulness i wish we could just get out of here hey darnell i didn't know you had an account here we're gonna have to let you go. The fact that you knew the perpetrator doesn't sit well with us. Do you know Lorenz and them got away with 20 grand? That's what we need to do. Rob a bank. That's stupid. Ain't nobody over here gonna be robbing no bank. We gonna end up dead anyways. Maybe that's the way to go. Firing off a nod. We just taken away from the system that's doing us all anyway. Well, what if something goes wrong? What if somebody gets hurt? Let's do it. All right, check it out. Y'all can roll with that right there. Well, we ain't robbing stage coaches. I need something I can set it off with. I ain't feeling this, Frankie. This ain't right. Okay. Because, like, what I find ridiculous about this movie is not necessarily, like, the racial allegory. It's more like the... Why does Jada Pinkett Smith like end up having to like sleep with that guy for money that like never comes back around? You I know, and like do why a... does the kid have to drink poison? Like they could have just been like seen by someone. It's yeah. a, like why do they pick like the worst thing to happen to reinstate this thing that they're already in the middle of doing? Yeah. The movie does a lot to establish why it thinks they would go to such lengths to rob banks but then like still departs from realism in so many ways as it becomes a full on action movie that it's like, so why did we have to do all that? Right. Why don't you spend some of that time uh, convincing me they're friends and are not just like, you know, hopped up people who like will kill each other at the slightest provocation. Like these are women who have supposedly known each other since they were babies. Yet by the end, they're all pointing guns at each other. It's bizarre. Before they somehow come to an understanding that they shouldn't have done that. What I don't understand, too, is... So this is the second movie, no spoilers, uh, with a cop shooting of an innocent black man. Yep. And this one is so interesting to me because by the brother being killed, Jada Pinkett Smith has no reason that she would need money. Like, why does the movie choose to have him, like, supposedly be getting into college, supposedly needing money to attend college, only to have it be like, nope, I didn't actually need that. I'm a drug dealer guy. Let me go to this house to get killed. 
oh, well, my killing was sort of justified then because I was like consorting with bad guys and I got this funny haircut and now my sister's definitely going to rob a bank because she doesn't need the money. Yeah. I don't get it. It's weird. This movie like undoes itself with bad writing. Like it could have had everything it needed with just Jada Pinkett Smith needing the money for her brother who did actually get into college. That would be great. And in a 2018 context is bizarrely sympathetic to John C. McGinley. Um, (laughs) Sure. Lives matter too. Over and over again. He's just like, I know that like we shouldn't have killed that unarmed black person before, but like this is way different now. And like, He's clearly such a villain. God damn this movie for like making me care about his emotional state. Dr. He Cox. He like knows that he's a douche too, I feel like. John C. McGinley knows. That he's like playing for douche. Yes. But like the movie like qu- won't quite give up on him when he's trying to like talk them down nine different times. It's so Only weird. to have the same result of one of them getting murdered. I don't know if it got like studio noted to death, but it's just very weird that F. Gary Gray, who grew up in South Central Los Angeles in a movie, what, two years after Rodney King is, like, puts this much energy toward making us sympathize with a douche. Right. A white douche. A white douche. And Um, don't you say, and I'm not a, you know, I, I don't need films to be, you know, tame or, like, without violence when it's justified, I'm I'm no prude here, but didn't you think the deaths of most of these women by the end of the movie, spoiler alert, uh, were way too much? So over the top in their level of like gore and violence and sadness. Yeah, like why didn't Queen Latifah just have like a dignified death as like that car sort of like rolls off the road? Like right. why did she need to then get out of the car and do like a Schwarzenegger like two arms under or two guns under her arms kind of thing? It's just a lot of yeah. The brutality extends from beginning to end without a lot of thoughtful consideration of like these women's like interior lives. This is the thing we should probably say. All three of these movies about women are directed by men. Um, yeah. And this one, I think least forgivingly, I would say that's because I, I just don't ever feel like there is a moment, even when they succeed with their crimes that these, I mean, powerful, well-acted female characters like have any agency. Right. They're always at the behest of, Oh, they owe this guy for whatever guns they use. And they like, Oh, this person, they don't really have any plans to like what they're going to do when they even have the money. And then you never get to see them be smart. Right. You don't have that sort of like orgy of what do they call it? That sort of orgy of speciality or whatever. The thing that people like about oceans eight is that like, you get to see so much like pornography of, people being good at something of skill of process. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Pornography of process. That's great. Yeah. Um, but there's no pornography of process at all. And they have these ingenious moments. Like when queen Latifah decides to just like run a truck through the bank to get them out. Cause there's cops but on the other best side part of the movie. That's a great, uh, there are some great action sequences here. And when it is heat, it's like good. And once they're in the last sort of, you know, movement of this movie. It's very good. But I think the weepy melodrama that leads up to it, you know, definitely subtracts a few points for me. I guess my question is like, why are these women portrayed like such fools? 
it's not passing the genre test that we've put it in today in a way that Widows still does with flying colors with so much else going on around it. Like the stuff in Widows where it's just like, go buy this gun, go to this van auction, uh, try to figure out where these architecture plans came from. It still manages to do the heist movie stuff that it has to do and excels with so much else on its plate that this movie just can't do the most basic version of. Right. If, if this like, movie just when... had 10% of Ocean's 8, it would be so much better. Because I'm even thinking now, like there is that scene where they're like all smoking weed on the roof to sort of like get them so that's like when the, the nugget of the idea of robbing the bank sort of comes to them but even that is sort of demeaning the process of them robbing the banks it's like oh this is this crazy thing they thought of when they were all stoned right and like presumably they've been smoking for years so like why do they still like seem so like high schoolery about like coughing and being like no you're high like no right. you're high like it just doesn't it feels a little like I understand that like maybe F. Gary Gray like has in his head that like, okay, these are the certain tropes and stereotypes that audiences sort of got into in Friday. But I feel like some of those stereotypes are like very much in here with not the same effect. Yeah. They're not unpacked as artfully. They're just more, this is something I'm going to do to like be funny maybe, but this is ultimately like a drama where everyone dies. Right. You know, Vivica is my favorite character in the movie. She's really good. I think when she starts doing that Marlon Brando thing, that's great. Uh, One of the most electric character moments of the movie is where they're walking into the first bank and everyone's about, they're like putting on their disguises in the hallway, terribly planned. And they're just like, we got to go back. We don't, we haven't cased this bank. And Vivica's like, okay. And just turns around and then just instigates the heist. Um, and the absolutely insane thing she does at the end when John McGinley is reaching out is like one of the few sort of like cathartic, like at least you've defiantly got yours, sister. Like, Certainly, at least yeah. you did that. Um, but it's just, there's just so much more that could have been done with her and like so many more of those things that could have been extended to the... Queen Latifah is, is very committed. Everyone's very committed, but it's just like that character is a madwoman. She's like Jeremy Renner in the town. Um, yes. It's very hard to generate sympathy. Um, these women just go through so much without generate, generating a lot of sympathy, not a lot of empathy. I will give this movie 2018 points for the fact that it portrays a lesbian relationship with like no criticism whatsoever. You're very right. And yeah, all the, all the girls in the crew are like, that's just, yeah, that's what she does. It's okay. It's so interesting to me though, that like the girlfriend has nothing to do with the heist. I really thought she was going to betray them again. I guess points to the movie for not doing that. Yeah. It was so weird to have this character who's like in half the scenes where they're just hanging. And then she's just like, what are you guys doing? Robbing a bank? Like, see you later. You know, in this, well, let's let's wrap up here. But like, you could do this movie like a good time, for instance, and show that like to be a real life criminal is to be incredibly reckless most of the time, and to be running around with your head cut off until the moment that they finally get you. But then don't stage it as a sweeping two hour character based drama that doesn't actually do that much for the characters. I think the more we talk it out, and you can tell from our tone, I think this one's gonna be a bad bad. I'll give it a bad good. I think it still has the heist elements and enough funny character like interplay that it's watchable. But I think like it writes itself out of compelling moments for these 
more the more human version of these characters to be like I have real needs. Like none of them have real needs. They have real anger. They have real tragedy, but they don't have real needs that this heist satisfies in the way that the women in Widows have needs that they need to satisfy. That's a good point. All right. Um, Speaking of movies without real needs, (laughs) should we talk about Ocean's 8? Yeah. So this came out just this past summer. Um, It was a substantial hit. Yeah, so what, we're like five years out here maybe from Ocean's... No, more than that. Maybe like 10 from Ocean's 13, and then Ocean's 11 came out in 2001. So we're a ways away from our Soderberghian beginnings here. Um, And how. What's that? And how. I was alluding to like, we're not only far from Soderbergh in terms of years, but like also in craftsmanship. Oh God, so far. (laughs) <laughs> let let it be said that uh, if anyone was wondering if Gary Ross is as good a director as Steven Soderbergh, it's decidedly I'm, no. I'm afraid the answer is no. I'm afraid <laughs> that Free State of the, the craftsman behind Free State of Jones is not quite up to uh, you know out of sight level um, cinematic heist pull off. Um, Debbie Ocean, Sandra Bullock is Danny Ocean, George Clooney's uh, sister. Well. We don't need to belabor the point. This is exactly like Ocean's Eleven, except with women and three fewer, and instead of robbing the Bellagio, they rob the Met Gala. Perfectly, with no conflict whatsoever. Yes, it's... They get away with it. You want to talk about pornography of process? Well, not compellingly drawing out that process. That's this movie. Yeah, let me, like, in two shots do the thing you asked me to do without... That's what I don't get about this movie from the outset, but keep going with the plot. You want to talk about it more? Is Anne Hathaway the good guy or the bad guy? We don't know. Yeah, Anne Hathaway is your Andy Garcia. Um, Sort of. Kate Blanchett is your Brad Pitt. Rihanna and her little sister, who's not included in the actual um, heist, because that would make it Ocean's Nine, are Casey Affleck and Scott Kahn. You know, one of the things I hate about this movie Tell me. is there are only seven people in the crew. So the entire time, if you just count, you know <laughs> who the eighth person is. Good afternoon, Miss Ocean. As you know, parole is a privilege. It's a mistake, uh, but it, it happened. And um, if I were to be released, I would... Um, I would just want the simple life. I just want to hold down a job, make some friends. You know, pay my bills. Even if this was possible, you'd need 20 people. Seven people. Why do you need to do this? Because it's what I'm good at. How long would it take you to make seven pieces of jewelry? Five or six hours. How long if I told you you didn't have to live with your mother anymore? You sleep tomorrow, Pasquale. What do you need here? Less. Wouldn't it have been better if Don Cheadle were in this one? I like his British accent. I think it's the best thing about all three films. Nobody thinks that. <laughs> that nonsense cop. I used to be working with proper criminals again. It's a terrible cockney accent. Rubble? Trouble! <laughs> but you need the character who, like, 
has the idea of how to do things, but doesn't know how to do them adequately or like things come up. Like that's what I really mean with the Don Sheetle thing It's like when they're trying to like do this thing, they have to do these drills, but then he like comes up covered in garbage cause they like can't do the drill thing. And then they have to go steal the, the thing that explodes the, all the lights. But Shut then the like, power, of yeah. course, Linus like gets out of the truck like because they don't know what they're doing because they're trying to do this quickly. There's no quickness. There's no pressure on any of these people to like get anything done. It's like, oh, are you a sort of bored woman? Well, doing this job will help fix all of your problems. And that's the movie. With this, the problem is that this movie is like an exact replica of Ocean's Eleven, but doesn't understand the that you just have to be an absolute wonk for detail to make something that is just like a purely platonic heist actually sing on the screen you have to be steven soderbergh you can't be a league average or below average director because then it's just like so i'm just watching everything turn out well Forever. It has the opposite problem of Ocean's 12 where like it never thinks it needs to have a part where they acknowledge that Tess Ocean looks like Julia Roberts. Yeah. Like this movie would have never believed that a situation of film could be in. It's true. But but it has the it's but it's its ambitions are so low. Like it thinks that if you put enough talented people in a room that it will be good. I saw this over the summer and was very frustrated. Oh, um, definitely. I saw then, it on a plane. I wanted the plane to land. And watched it, but I watched it again this week while doing a little second screen experience and, you know, pausing it and being like, will this, here is my thought process, basically. My, 50% of my youth was watching Ocean's Eleven on TNT. So what if I just give this movie that treatment? Is that what it deserves? Is that fair? And when you're, like, not paying attention, like, it slides by just fine. Kate Blanchett's, like, green coats are incredible. Um, Some of the reviews I read noted, like, how intricate the costuming is and stuff like that. Maybe because they're sort of grasping for, like, good things to say about this movie. But I also think that it's very true. And very noticeable. And there are good chemistry in moments, if not in the whole group, like... Helena Bonham Carter and Mindy Kaling in the scene where they're like speaking French to the Cartier executive and Mindy Kaling just pops a wee on the end. Like that's, that's nicely done. At some point, Helena Bonham Carter was up to, went up to Gary Ross. And like, I was like, okay, what's my motivation for this scene? And he's like, well, nervous. Yeah. And she goes like, and then what? And then Gary Ross goes, what do you mean? <laughs> I yeah. just don't feel like there are many arcs here. It's like the people who were nervous, like even in the, the oceans one through 11 through whatever, 13, you see, I mean, often annoying, like Steven Soderbergh and like George Clooney laughing in a writing room kind of growth from these people, like leading a revolution or like fucking whatever. That's 13 um, though. We don't talk about 13. Isn't that, tw- oh, that is 13. You're right. Um, yeah. But there's no growth here. Like, nobody wants anything. Nobody's trying to get back at someone's, like, ex-wife. Like, there's no... These are all just like, oh, maybe Anne Hathaway deserves this because she's what? Spoiled. Um, 
Well, it's interesting you point that out, though. They are critically trying to get back at the gallery owner who screwed over Debbie Ocean and sent her to jail. But the the inherent problem with that whole relationship is that in the flashbacks, Debbie Ocean is like a completely like unwily character. She's like a little kid, but it's like a standard book. You're still 50. You're the same person. This was like, this was five years ago. Why are you? Hey, get over it. Or yeah, or like, wh- how are you? How is somebody who's this smart now being taken advantage of somebody with, with this little charm? I don't. And it's don't not get, like she's still in love with him the way Danny Ocean is with Tess. Like he's trying to get her back. Right. This is just petty revenge, and everybody gets rich too. But again, not a big enough stake. Not the like, oh, this is my soulmate that I have to retrieve. This is just like I'm gonna fuck this guy over if possible. And you know it was really apparent this time for me, which I guess I'll just come out and, and knock it out. Sandra Bullock is Sandra Bullock is bad in this movie. She's just not good. She's just not there. I just it just didn't feel like there was much energy from her. She's sort of like walking lackadaisically from like set piece to set piece. She's do she think somebody has told her that she has to do a George Clooney impression down to if you listen she's actually speaking in a much lower tone of voice than you're used to hearing her speak like she's actually talking like George Clooney and when she walks across a room she's looking back toward the camera not believably because anyone might be watching but because like that's the feeling you get when you watch George Clooney is that he's like mugging for the camera a little bit, even though he would never, he's not actually looking at the camera. So why do the actors in this movie do that? This movie is after the feeling of Ocean's Eleven, but like it doesn't understand like what actually happens scene to scene and moment to moment when you make a movie that intricate. Right. Well, it's also not interested in making a movie that intricate and isn't a movie that, that intricate. So yeah, like that's what I don't understand about these, like the reboots. And I think, and I don't mean to, and perhaps it's controversial to say so, but I think the movies that hang on simply the premise of casting eight highly talented female actors in a movie means you don't need to have a script. I feel like this suffers from that. The Ghostbusters reboot yeah. suffered from that. And I don't think it's sexist to say. It's not a way to make a movie, especially with Gary Ross and Paul Feig and not women writing right. and directing. Exactly. What you have is the same movie a man would have made with women as the man parts. But like that's not any less gazy and sort of male interested than a, a, mo- than a movie with all men in it. Right. There's no, there's no subversion. Yeah. This movie, if you're just like... Because you understand every beat and like Kate Blanchett, while she doesn't have a character, is having a lot of fun. And I, I feel, uh, I think Sarah Paulson is probably the best person in this movie. Like she at least has like chosen like a shtick for this character um, where like that woman, they have to get that woman sick. So she'll, uh, so she'll miss work and she, and Sarah Paulson can take the job at, at the Met and the person's like, yeah, she had like a uh, chiggers. I don't even know what that is. And Sarah Paulson's like, oh yeah, it's a mite that burrows into the skin. And <laughs> she just like knows too much. And that's the joke. Um, I think this movie is, is bad. Good. But like, if you start to think about it, you've heard us. It is very frustrating. If you think about any technical character element of it all, but if you let it slide by as though it were on TNT, it's completely inoffensive and fine. It is the most inoffensive parts of, 
Ocean's Eleven. It is the airplane movie. It's perfect as an airplane movie, which is how I watched it. And it yeah. got by 90 minutes or whatever it is. No, it's an hour 50. So it's it goes by fast enough. Um, I don't love rating movies that way. You know? <laughs> it's very dangerous for them to be in the casino in Ocean's Eleven. They have to leave. There's the whole conceit right. of like Terry Benedict will see them. And at a certain point watching this movie, I was like, they're just walking in a circle, passing around a key card. Like they don't, they're just, they're just there. It's not dangerous. I understand like that the Met Gala is like an interesting place to do. It has that sort of cachet of like fight night at the Bellagio kind of thing, sure. you know, with a more female centered demo reaching kind of whatever. Of course. It's not a bad idea for but a place to set the movie. The thing about the Met Gala is it's all about like the, the construct of it as an event is like, and the, it, the movie breaks this down too, is seeing people get in and get out of a place very quickly. Yeah. So there's not the same stakes as like, they're there to see like a thing in the middle and like, they're here to see this like violent thing. Like people just like have a flute of champagne, get their picture taken and then leave. So of course it's like the ideal circumstance to steal something. Right. I just never felt that same level of, Oh God, are they going to, are they going to pull it off? Cause nothing has like even indicated that they would face even a moment of like not being able to get away with it. Right. Right. I'm going to say, what I say? Bad, good. You can Bad, say whatever good. you want. Bad, good? I, Bad, good. It's, I guess it's fun. All right. So that brings us to the end of our... Uh... I love this category. It was fun, man. Uh, it's nice that Widows was really good and nice that Set It Off was so crazy. It's, I, I, like, I like feeling obsolete when we watch these movies. That's good for the world. <laughs> I don't want to have to hold up the mantle of robbing banks all on my own as a gender. Is that God, what you mean? No. Uh, yeah, sure. That's great. <laughs> That's yeah, great. I think we should give that one up. We uh, need more lady criminals out there in the world. Absolutely. With more compelling plots. Yes, than these last two. Uh, check out berealpodcast.com for all of our past content. Um, and hang out with us there as we get into truly uh, prestige times and some year-end episodes. Some exciting yeah, you got stuff. got Tim Burton's no Dumbo coming up. No. <laughs> That's going to be the dark horse this year. That won't be included on this show i promise <laughs> unless noah flies so low with his ears on that one um so yeah find us on twitter instagram thank you as always for having uh for spending your time with us and uh noah i'll catch you next time my friend i can't wait love me love me love me say you do